Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mack. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackey. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Green from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gasheling and you're listening to Not the British. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not the Footy Show, our last for 2022. And I believe we've got some really interesting guests on this show. Yes, we have two. We have Reese Paddock and Emma Gibbons from Acknowledge This. And John, we're looking at speeches at sporting events. And in particular, the Welcome to Country. Does it fit? Can it fit better? I think it's really interesting. Looking forward to it. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lay. Merry Christmas, John. Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, am I starting us off? Yeah, go on. Oh, I think it's your turn. It probably is. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I was going to touch on, obviously, the FIFA World Cup. We saw Australia perform way better than anybody expected, except for maybe Graham Arnold and the players, but certainly... <laughs> it's uh, certainly their best performance yeah. in the World Cup. And I think anybody that says they expected them to get out of the pool, I don't believe them <laughs> because they don't... They may have dreamt of it, but it was very unrealistic, probably, expectation. But credit to them, they did really, really well. Yeah. I, I think there were people that expected them to win one game yeah. and were hoping they could snavel a point and maybe squeeze through on goal difference. But, you know, wow, they exceeded those expectations. Two wins. Yeah, fantastic two clean sheets as yeah. well. But out of this, of course, comes the aftermath. What is going to happen? Now, there's a couple of things Nothing. that, yeah, and that's what worries me is, is that, you know, if we go back to 1974, the first time that the Socceroos ever qualified for a World Cup, and there were only 16 teams back then, is nothing was done by, I think it was then the Australian Soccer Federation, to, to ride that wave of enthusiasm that resulted. 2006, we hadn't qualified for so long. Same thing happened. They qualified the, what were they called then, FFA then, Football Federation Australia. Nothing was there to ride on the wave of emotions as a result of that. And we've got now, this time around, we're waiting and everyone's waiting going, well, what are you going to do to ride that enthusiasm, the emotion? And it looks like, again, it's going to be nothing. But what has really upset me is we've then seen the Federa uh, Football Australia, as they're called now, saying that they want the government to give them uh, more money. Yeah, yeah, good one. And, and I'm like, seriously? Because I remember reading something recently, or it was a year or so ago, and I think since 2005, football in this country has been given around, and I might not be exactly correct, but it's around $750 million by the federal government. That's the federal government, not the state governments. And I, and I think before any, and I love my football, as you know, but I don't think the government should give them a cent until they do an audit on where that money has gone. Because I think the sport, as, as Mark Schwartzer asked in a press conference there, he goes, why is the sport paying so much for juniors to play? If we want to develop the game, we've got to have more juniors playing and it's got to be affordable for them to play. Now, $1,500, $2,000 for a kid to play soccer is ridiculous. I mean, it's just just mad and then I was looking at it as well if you look at other areas and you think well, do we really need the amount of governance that the game has and we were talking before we came on air how if you look at Football Australia what do they run, they don't run the A-Leagues anymore so they're pretty much in charge of just the Socceroos, uh, the Matildas and the Junior National Teams and yet all the state bodies obviously report into Football Australia because FIFA sees them as the governing body 
But saying that, then, do we need to have a head of development in every state? Do we need to have a CEO in every state? And I just think, no, we probably don't. If you were running a business, you would have a head of department, and they could be in any state, and then officers underneath them would report into that one person. And I, and I mean, if you just look, John, CEOs, there are eight CEOs in state bodies around Australia. Now, if you take as an average 150,000, and some of them are earning more than that, that's over a million a year that you could say that you could take off those juniors' fees down the track. Do we need eight CEOs? I don't think we do. You're going to run up against a fierce opposition from I always do. people within the states because especially in, in Australia that has uh, a really strong history of uh, antagonism between the states that um, people don't want to give up their little patch of turf. WA certainly wouldn't want to give up their, having their separate body with their CEO and all that because they would, they would in, perhaps rightly feel that they would be ignored by the rest of the country. Yeah, but you're still... And, and then South Australia is going to have the same complaint. Northern Territory is going to... will have the same complaint. And, and they would viciously oppose any centralisation of, of football. But, but you would still... This is where I, I think if you run it properly, you would still have somebody that was in charge that, 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 of that area may, of the game. You may very well, but you've got to get them to relinquish that in the first place. And they're not going to do it because every state is paranoid, you know... Okay, Queensland, uh, let's just take New South Wales and Victoria. Where are you going to centralise that? Which, which one of those two states is going to give up no, but no, I'm the not. control of the well, game uh, within their state but you to find, have it sent somewhere else? But you find whoever is the best person to oversee that thing. And, no, and to me, it doesn't matter ar- whether, no, but that doesn't matter to me whether they're in Queensland, whether they're in South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales. The best person oversee- oversees it and you have everyone else in yeah. the states is on the same level doing the same role in each state. But who, who's, that, that might, it doesn't matter what model you're asking. To put in place. I hear what you're saying. They've got to but give you've, that you've, up. You've got to give up your own autonomy first for, to allow any of that to happen. And I don't, I don't think that there's the will within the Australian football community to do that. And we've only seen what, seen what's happened recently with the, um, the announcement of what they want to do with the grand final. And people do not want to give up what they consider to be their, their, their right. That's it. You see, to me, John, the key, the key things here is I think, you know, referees, again, you could have a central person. You've got one person to run the referees here to do allocations for referees for games. Yep, and referee could. training could come in. Fix, fixturing here, I think you would need to have somebody on the ground so that if there is an issue, there is a local person that you can talk to and you can discuss those matters with. So I think fixturing would still need somebody on the ground here. Uh, development, I'm saying, yes, you would definitely need people. You would still have your state teams, although, as you know, my feelings are we should go the New Zealand model and do away with all these under-14s, under-15s. I don't even know what, what relevant state teams have in football, to be honest. Well, I don't know the relevance they have at all in a lot of sports anymore um, at underage level. Yeah, or representative teams apart from national teams. Well, when, football when, make no sense at all. But when you have as well... 
people involved in that it's space. Only in, only in this country we have those sorts of state team representations. There's not a, is there a junior Midlands team that represents all the Midlands clubs or players? No. Yep. Oh, they, do, ca- they do have a, a yeah, in the UK they do have a thing where they have, they pick the best from an area and they play in a competition in some sports, yeah. No, in football. Uh, in football, I'm specifically talking okay, football, football, they used to always have the schools, uh, I think that's still going, where they pick the best from the schools. So it's a schoolboys team. Yeah, it's a schoolboys team. But not, there's not a, a um, regional competition that runs not like that one, the way that we run no, our junior Not that I'm programs. aware of, but I haven't yeah. lived there for a long time. And I, I reckon you'd be hard-pressed to find many other countries that would have a system similar to ours because of the nature of the way that these things have developed. But one of the other problems I have with that is, as we're seeing now, and I was talking to somebody recently, where I think Boxing WA would be one of the few representative teams. If you get in a Boxing WA team, Boxing WA fund you to go and represent the state. Whereas a lot of the others, they now go to mum and dad and say, hey, we need you to pay your kids being picked for this. And when you have a development person in one of the sports, as they said to me, if it comes down to two players that are of a similar standard, I'm told to look at what their dad does or their mum does for a job because they might be a potential sponsor. So whoever has the potential sponsorship opportunity, that child will get picked. Now, to me, if you have a system like that, it stinks, so there's no point having it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I would agree, but it's no surprise, and there would be lots of sports that have very similar... It's, it might not be written down anywhere. Oh, it wouldn't be written down. <laughs> There'd be real trouble if it was. Oh, yeah, but certainly those, and let's face it, there's always been those things taken into account when certain selections like that are being made at junior levels across lots of sports for a long time. But just going back to this request for more funding from Football Australia, and an area that I think... Ask Neymar. He's got plenty of money. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what about Ronaldo? How much is he sitting on? Go and ask him. His nana lives down yeah. the road. Yeah, pass him to sponsor it, it. yeah. It could be the Ronaldo... Well, see, that's the problem with football. You know why it costs kids so much? Because that's what the top level's getting. The system feeds up to those blokes. But also, right? look at what we said. But now we've got rid of the um, AIS program. But, I mean, I was always advocating that when they made it, they should pay a percentage back, like a hex fee. But what I was going to say is, if you look at it, there's a lot of money given to the culturally and linguistically diverse sector from government Two sports to do that now. If, if you look in, it, in football, it's interesting. I was at a Parks and Leisure conference, and they were saying that one of the big issues in Victoria at the moment and in Western Australia at the moment, I'm sure it's happening in a lot of states, is they're seeing more and more people now playing what they call informal sports. And they said, so they're turning up at ovals, or having games, but they said what they found out was they're not just a kickabout game. They've actually organised their teams with <laughs> leagues that are turning up. They're not hiring the ground and then the clubs that are hiring that space are annoyed because the pitches. And then they're also using the sort of edge of the floodlights for training and training alongside them. So to me, you've got to say, well, if that's happening again, there's a reason that that is happening. And I would say that a lot of that is that the body concerned is not servicing that section of the community in a yeah. way that works. So the funding is not being used correctly. And again, if you look at when this white elephant that they're building here in Western Australia for football, which is 37 million, this home of football. Um, You know, they, in the documents there, they put forward that 240,000, it might have been 250,000 people play football in Western Australia, yet only 44,000 
are registered with Football West. Now, my argument all along is going, well, how come you gave that percentage the money when the bigger percentage is not involved in that body? The money should have been going to all the other people. So this is why I think there needs to be an audit, because I don't think the money is going in the right places to the right people if you want to grow football. This is Gary Lineker, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, it's now time for our special guests, and I must admit I've been really looking forward to catching up with these two people because I go to sporting events quite a lot, either as a commentator or a spectator, and I have to say one of the things that really gets me is when we have too many speeches. You're there to be entertained, you're there for the sport, and there are certain individuals... Hang on a second, I'd just like to thank. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I thought I would catch up with... Reese Paddock and Emma Gibbons. Emma Gibbons, oh, well, she'll tell you what she is, but I found out she's a change strategist, whereas Reese Paddock was an Aboriginal educator. He now calls himself a cultural desensitivity uh, trainer, and they work for a company called Acknowledge This. Emma Gibbons and uh, Reese Paddock, welcome to Not the Footy Show. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I was going to try and introduce you both as to what you do, but I think it's probably easier if our listeners and I let you do that yourselves. Uh, Yeah, so I'm Emma. Um, I'm from cold, dark places. Alaska and Minnesota is where I grew up. Um, Hockey country and definitely um, gridiron football, as I have learned it's called country. Um, And I'm a change strategist, so I work on political and advocacy campaigns around the world in different cultures, creating culture change. And Reese, I'm yeah. Reese Paddock. Um, I'm a cultural, uh, Aboriginal cultural uh, facilitator and trainer. I'm a cultural desensitivity expert. Is um, the title that I completely just made up for myself. Um, <laughs> so I'm a Baramaya Yamaji Nunga Australian. Um, I've worked in Aboriginal education for like 13 years now, and I'm very invested in uh, connecting to people with Aboriginal culture, um, what that is, what that means, and how I guess we can have a deeper understanding of both the modern and the traditional spaces that we. Right, so there's um, plenty of work in those areas, I'm sure, for both of you. But uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you guys today is because if we look at, first of all, probably sporting events, you know, we're told they're about entertainment. One of the things that frustrates me is when we see all these people standing up making speeches. And I'm just wondering, if you're looking at making events work, would you say cut the speeches or minimise them? Um, Well, where I would jump off from that is... um at least where I grew up, um, football, sport, is like a religion. It is that cohesive element that brings our community together and creates a shared space where we all get to interact and connect outside of whatever isms or identities we might carry around. And so I think sport has an incredibly important role in our community as that place of gathering. And I think of the book um, Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, and it's all about how to have meaningful experiences and curate those. She talks about opening rituals and closing rituals to set that space. So I wonder, an acknowledgement of country, welcome to country, it is a ritual, if you will. It is, a, it is a space where we can set the tone for what we're about to experience. So certainly I think it can be reimagined to make that experience of the sport, of the entertainment, richer, more present, more meaningful. Reese, have you got any thoughts just hmm. on that at this point? It's hard for me because, like, I, I'm, I don't watch sport 
nor do I ever... Like, it's not my thing, right? Yeah. So I'm going like, I need to know what kind of speeches you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we, we get politicians waffling on is yeah. one of the ma bad things. And think yeah. about Ash and, like, Corroboree for Life. Like, the dancers at, like, Optus. Yeah, so I think that's why, like, context is important, right? So I'm like, I mean, if you're setting the scene, if you're setting the stage for something that's exciting and you're getting a football match and, like, whatever complements that beforehand, it's got to match the energy or it's got to... So it's like, I'm, I'm sure, like... In some instances, something short can be established to set the stage, but it really comes down to your intent, right? Like, what is the intention of this speech or this talk or this acknowledgement of country, whatever it is? Because if it's sort of aligned with something that is like, oh, because we feel like we have to or, you know, because everybody else is doing it, like, I think people know that. Like, people receive that beyond the words that people are saying. And I'm like, I don't think anybody wants that. You know what I mean? But that being said, like, context is important. So if it's something that is that really sets the scene well, then, like, why not? Yeah, I, th yeah. I think you're 100% right that it must complement the event. Yeah. But it shouldn't be, like you're saying, just a tokenism that we're doing this because we've kind of got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what do you say about, you know, in, um, the community that judges us? It's not a secret cabal. <laughs> There is not a secret cabal of elders, right, that is judging and uh, reviewing every single, like in this case, acknowledgement of country, right? That's, I think that's what people think. Like people are very afraid of like not doing the thing when ultimately it's, it's kind of ironic because what the elders do talk about is the idea of saying words that are meaningful to you that comes from your heart, not from your head. When everybody's yeah. up here in their heads, you know? Well, and the piece is that, like, the people who are in attendance with you, those are the people who you're in service to when you're saying words that should be connected, when you're trying to create that connective experience. It's not doing it for fear of, you know, getting called, or, called out or cancelled. You want to bring those good intentions yeah. to be in service to those whom you're meeting with. They're, they are the people yeah. who are there to yeah. reflect your intention. Yeah. So w would you say, therefore, it, unless you're doing it from the heart, you're better off not doing it, would you say? Courageously, yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the things that a lot of people said, and it upsets me because we are seeing, and as I said this to you guys before we started this conversation, there are some people that you see doing Welcome to Country or doing good speeches before these events. Most of them, uh, the speeches are pretty bad, but the, the Welcome to Country, the fans are not listening. You know, that's the sad thing. So there's not that connection, which is what it's meant to be all about. Is there another way that we could get that message across, like through dance or through music? Do you think there is a way of getting the same cultural message across? I think there's multiple ways, right? So, like, for a sporting event, I can imagine it, it would, it's like it would almost definitely have to be something that's performative, that's performing. Like, that's where I'd like to see the dance opening the ceremony. You know, the New Zealanders got that, you know. Um, I, I think that's, and that's visual and that's exciting and that's, that's a language without words, you know. Mm. But of course, like anything, if you get somebody up there just to read a script or say some words, that's not, for this context in yeah. playing sport and getting ready to see people smash each other, that's, that's, that's almost like it's not um, uh, congruent with what I'm about to be in. So I'm like, yeah, show me the dance, show me the music, show me something that's, big and powerful because I'm here to experience big and powerful, mm. not small and, and wordy. <laughs> mm. and, the, and I love what you said too about like it's, it's meaningful and it moves people yeah. without words, yeah. right? I think that's the power of dance and music is it moves your heart, right? It moves your emotional state um, into a place rather than your mental state. Yeah. Overall, I reckon um, 
if we're looking at modern and traditional culture and the intersection between them, modern culture has forgotten that connection is important. We've created so much isolation and division that we forget that connection is actually the root of it. And the, I wonder if these practices could be reimagined as just a practice of connection. And so in a sporting event, instead of someone getting up and doing some type of performative activity, what if you asked every fan to high-five someone new that's sitting behind them? Or um, have a yarn with who you came with about uh, what does home mean to you? You know, like start a conversation, start creating connection and interaction as part of the ritual, not necessarily the performative exercise. Yeah, I think the word you use there, connection, that's the thing that I think is missing mm. in these sort of events before the game starts. There is no connection, mm. and it's important that we get that. Now, Reese, I mean, I, I was saying to you how a lot of people say to me, oh, why can't we just have, you know, a dance like the haka, which you touched on with the New Zealanders. But sometimes people don't understand that the Aboriginal people are many, many tribes or mobs mm. and many different languages, so there isn't one dance necessarily that you can do, is there? No, not, 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 and I love that we sort of reference the, the, the haka in the New Zealand, because that's kind of, I, I think ultimately what people are sort of, Australians are sort of looking for is the cultural identity of our, of our ultimate tribe as Australians, right? And like New Zealanders have got that with the sporting industry within the haka, because like all New Zealanders, whether you're a Pakia, white yeah. fella, or if you're Māori, you're all connecting to that as the construct of the culture that surrounds that sporting um, event or opportunity. And I think I'm like, that's where, like, a, what Australians also require. So you're right in the sense of like, okay, there's not a haka. We don't have a haka yeah. or a specific dance that's, and that we can say is like all Australia wide. But we do have the construct of Aboriginal dance that is unique to each place. So in my mind, I'm like... Yeah, which I think would be great. Yeah, that's right. So it's like, it's almost like you've got your own version of a specific place or a specific culture and there's a dance that references that specific place and that specific culture that can be performed anywhere from the local peoples of that place and i'm like the, the outcome is still the same because people still sit in their seats and they go great i am now i can now connect to the uh traditional opening of my country whether you're aboriginal or not aboriginal yeah. um regardless of whether it's called the x the y or the z it's like this is the this is the one of this space of this country here, wherever that is, you know. I also think that's really educational, not just to people that are watching on television, say from overseas, because suddenly they will realise that there are different cultures in each state or city or whatever. Yeah. But it's also education to the people of Australia. Yeah, I think it could be really fun, right? So uh, there's there's lots of opportunities here. Like there there are there are. Like, because we don't have a haka, but we have a consistent theme of, let's say, for example, stomping your feet on the ground to connect to the country that you're at. Now, that's a very generalised Aboriginal construct, which I can confidently say most, if not all, Aboriginal peoples have a connection to. And in my mind, I'm like, you could take that, open that space, and then, you know, you could get the people in the audience to I'm be just stomping, thinking, yeah, if you got stomping the whole their feet oh, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now you're actually engaging, and now people are going, okay, I'm now engaging in the traditional concept here. I'm getting ready. I'm getting hyped. The game's about to start. I'm involved in this too. We just borrow from Queen. Oh. Dum, dum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it could go into Queen. Yeah, yeah. who knows? Yeah, there's something cool there. Like, there's something interesting and fun and exciting. Mm. Yeah. And, and I love, you were getting exactly where I was going to go. It's like, what are those universal things? Yeah. Country. Culture, elders, mm, mm, dance, mm -hmm. movement, like being grounded. Like there are certainly universal elements that could be threaded into a shared ritual. Yeah. Um, 
And I also love that celebrating the uniqueness in every little patch, which furthers our curiosity to learn about our local patch and our local country. Yeah, yeah I mean, to me, that's really important. If you're going to do these things, it's got to be, as you touched on, you've got to connect with the audience, but also you want them to kind of go away wanting to know more or that they've actually learned something from mm. the, the experience. That, that, to me, is the important part. Yeah. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And I think people don't feel personally connected to country and culture. Um, so you talked about like the fan base, right? And like I think sometimes when I hear people who are like, "Ugh, the acknowledgement of country, what a waste of time!" It's it's often because they don't see themselves in it, right? They don't have a connection to country, to culture, to this practice. They don't see how it matters or how they relate to it. And each of us do connect with country, even if we don't name it that, you know. Um, whether you're going sailing or where you walk your dog on the bush block or the farm your family has tended for seven generations, like. All of that is a connection to country, and it's in that shared space, that middle space, where we're kind of creating what that looks like. So I guess I would be, if you're looking for where to start, start with how do I connect with country, and then how would I convince others on how they can connect with, or how can I encourage others to connect with country as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I heard uh, a phrase the other day, and it was talking about more businesses, but, but do, would you say in your experience that, and, and I know, Reese, you don't follow sports, so you may not be able to answer this. <laughs> but but um, that some of the organizations are maybe not culturally competent. That was the phrase used. Mm. That they, they sort of touch on it, they skate the service, tick a box, but they actually don't understand beyond just enough to be actually able to make the right decisions. Yeah, I tackle with this question like <clears throat> throughout my whole career. It's hard to, it's hard to find where the threshold is as to what is culturally and not culturally competent because like there's so many variables here. Yeah. So it's hard to say. I talk about it like there's always a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum of like from one end you've got the you do have the tokenistic tick the box intention of like just doing a thing. But then on the other end of the spectrum you've got this authentic genuine uh, desire and incentive to connect to the traditional concepts and constructs in the country. And I think, like, this is very generalised just based on my experience. I reckon, like, most Australians, whether it's personally or as a business or as an organisation, sort of sit somewhere in the middle. In the middle in the sense of, like, I think people, generally speaking, do have a general interest and uh, connection to uh, the Aboriginal culture of this country, but at the same time, because, and there's lots of reasons why it could be because, uh, you know, we only, uh, 3 4% of the country, um, you know, the Aboriginal culture of that space is not seen or heard of, whatever it is, people don't really know where to start, and so they have no choice but to start ticking boxes because at least it's some sort of something that they can do. Yeah. So therefore it's sort of in the middle. So it's hard for me to be like, yes or no organizations are culturally competent, I can just sort yeah, of go there. We can't to, generalize really, but yeah. some are better than others. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Well, that, yeah. that, that yeah. is true. Yeah. And, and, we, and we love them wherever they are on that yeah, spectrum, yeah, yeah. right? Like, again, if you're in, even coming from a place of tokenism, you're on the board. Um, something that we talk about a lot is moving from awareness to application. And so I, I wonder, like, if you're making people aware or exposing them to new concepts about culture, cool, but how do you actually get them to apply it, to get their own hands dirty, to take that personal responsibility almost and, and put it into practice? I think that's the shift that, that to become culturally competent, I don't know if that's the right word, but from awareness into cultural application, ooh, that's a spot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it, you're working in this space. I mean, are, are there people coming to you and wanting to get better at what this area? 
Mm. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> that's why we yeah. that's why we do what we do because yeah. we love doing it. Yeah. 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 yeah, and, and it's all dimensions of society, which is great. So, like, I'm sure, we're talking about sport right now, but it's um, finance, mining, um, schools, uh, dance, gymnastics. Like, it's everywhere, right? And so, there's a universality to it, um, which is quite exciting. And it is good that we are moving in that direction. Whereas, you know, I moved to Australia probably 35 years ago, and there was nothing like that then. Yeah. Yeah. So that was probably before you were born. I think. Well, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, me and Emma were born in the same month, so actually, yeah. Yeah, that's how we came friends. We're like, no way! Yeah, October, October 1990. Oh, yeah. besties. <laughs> oh, yeah. And even, like, just in the last, just on the rate of change, um, 10 years ago, I don't think there would have been a... Five years ago, there might not even been a market for this type of conversation that we're hosting about authentic acknowledgements of country. Um, the growth has been exponential in the two and a half years we have been working in this space, um, and it's only... The projection is further exponential growth. Like we're at that moment of culture change where it is on the uptick, and so it's quite exciting. I'm sure it is, and I mean, I think if that education process can continue, then the, what we're going to see at sporting events is going to evolve over time, and it could be something really special, especially if we get your foot stomping yeah. happening. You know, that's oh, right. Hopefully, and I think people like I would encourage creativity, and like give it a crack. You know, the worst is you stuff it up. And you have to have a learning moment and learn what to do differently the next time. But get curious and creative with it, right? Like this is a this is a modern practice, or this is a practice we're putting into our modern culture. So, you know, you can reinvent how sporting events start. Do it. Do something a little different. And I would have thought even if you do it a little bit different, people are going to go away and have a conversation, go and say exactly, wow, that was a little bit different. Yeah. And you'll be able to then gauge what is actually connecting and what is having the, the outcomes that you want. And you don't actually know until you get that feedback loop. No, absolutely. Well, look, it's been great catching up with you both. I think you're doing some great work, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts on a subject that some people don't want to talk about, but I think it's a subject that we need to talk about. Yeah, mm, no, yeah. definitely. I think, most, I think most, people are, um, most people are sort of put into the position of fear, whether they think it or not, in the sense of like, ah, we, we, we've, we've got to do this thing, and also we, or we, have to, we have to accept it as something that's separate to me. All, the only thing that Emma and I do is, is provide the space where, both from the modern and the traditional perspective, that there's, there's, there's culture at work here that everybody can connect to, not out of fear, but out of enjoyment, excitement, and ultimately love, right? Yeah. So however we sort of establish that is, that's, that's our game, that's what we play, and we think the idea of essentially acknowledging country, people, and place, that's at least a good opportunity uh, to be able to start. You know? But yeah, no, thank you. That's um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting and exciting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the quote that I'd leave you all with is um, to go, f or that courage is having fear and taking a step anyway. So go forth courageously. Well, thank you, Reese, Emma, for joining us today. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mark Paducah, and you're listening to Not the Footy Show. And that was Emma Gibbons and Reese Paddock. And I like her comment at the end, John, and they were saying, take a risk, change. If you want to make a change, why not have a go? Do something different and see what impact it has on your fans. But the key thing is you've got to have the fans that come to watch that they go away thinking about what they've seen, 
talking about what they've seen. And as I said at the beginning before the interviews, sometimes if there's a speech at a venue, they're not going to go away and talk about that speech. Can you? Uh, what's the best speech you've ever heard at a sporting event? I couldn't tell you a single one. Exactly. Yep. No, I can't remember. And, and if if you could remember why if the the ones that are remembered aren't, they're, they're, it's always something a player or a coach says. It's never oh, yes. anything one of the people getting out. Oh, we've created a united world, and isn't this wonderful? No one remembers that stuff. No. Nah. Exactly, and I mean, I've done a few post-match interviews, and they're bad enough because a lot of players don't really want to talk to you no. after they've just won a grand final or... Or lost. Know, yeah, or lost, and so sometimes, you know, even sticking a microphone under their nose, it's, you feel, oh, do I really have to do this? But would you, uh, look, would you I, ban sideline interviews? I'd ban half-time interviews 100%. I think they're a complete waste of time. I would ban inside the dressing room cameras. I don't agree with that because I think players deserve to have some sanctuary where they can kick the bin over or a water bottle or throw their shirt. And I just don't think... I think that's a uh, misunderstanding of what it's like to be part of a team when a camera goes into a dressing room. I've always mm-hmm. felt that. So fair. I mean, I, I understand why broadcasters love it. Oh, I, I understand why they like it, but I think it's an intrusion too far. I don't think they should be going in there. That's I've always felt that, and I've argued with a lot of TV executives, and I've been called a lot of names because I've argued that I think it's an intrusion when they then take that footage and use it to make a story. Yeah. Which they very often do. Oh, look at why he's upset. Why is so-and-so? And then next thing on Twitter, oh, look, at this is a footage of so-and-so doing this, and he must be upset. Why is it? Sometimes you're having a bad day, mate. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to kick something. But we're just talking about kicking, and that's related. As we heard there, Reese was saying that there's the connection with Welcome to Country, where obviously if they did a dance and tried to kind of carry through a message through dance and through music, and he was saying about the hitting of the ground. Now, I like this idea of getting a whole stadium to stamp their feet to create an atmosphere, and I think that would be amazing. But you... <laughs> You were saying, listening to that, that uh, a few people who engineers built might engineers might not like well, that. Back in the day, you, do you remember Beatty Park? Yes, sir. We did, used yeah. to have the inter-school swimming competition there. It would be on a Saturday night. Beatty Park, for listeners overseas, yeah. was built for the Commonwealth Games in 1962. Yeah, it's, it's an swimming. aquatic centre. Yeah. yeah. So we would have our, our the inter-school swimming carnival there. It was a big event for the schools. And uh, that place... Used to show, they used to do this thing would stomp feet and the whole building, the whole stadium would shake. And it's really cool when you're 13 or 14. Oh, look at this, the building's bloody wobbling. Yeah! <laughs> but, um. Well, I, I was, I remember <laughs> just... 2001 in the Estadio Centenario when Australia played, the Socceroos played yeah. Uruguay. And I think there were only 23 Australian fans <laughs> inside that ground. And man, that was absolutely rocking there. And the, and a lot of the seats were concrete. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah So that they couldn't smash them and throw them on the pitch. But that was the one time I felt that was the whole place literally, you could feel it reverberating. And it is a really cool feeling. I get that. <laughs> I certainly get that. Don't know, don't know if it's going to be encouraged by stadium owners though, unfortunately. It's a good idea. No, oh, but. Well, where do you, where do you stand? Look. Where do you stand on Welcome to Country? I think it has its place. I don't think its place is everywhere. Yeah, as we touched on in that interview, I, I think, and I think it was Reese said, it, 
if you want to do it, it must come from the heart. Like, don't just do it as a form of tokenism because you feel that's what should be done. Do it because you want to do it and you actually want to embrace it. And I should just actually touch on, for those of you in Perth that are listening, because well, um, I just want to say oh, this, because acknowledge this, actually have a public training session every two weeks to discuss these things. Their yeah. schedule is on their website, so it's acknowledge this, and it's just $5 to, to go and learn about it. And I would encourage any companies or individuals to go along and learn a little bit more about it. I, I'm, I would put it in the same bracket as the, um, I know people will probably sledge me for it, as the National Anthem. I think we sing the National Anthem too, far too often at, sporting events that don't deserve the national anthem to be sung at it. And I think the interesting thing with that, John, is you're seeing more and more people not standing up for the national anthem nowadays. That's what I thought. I was at an event a week yeah. ago, and it was interesting that there were less people standing for the national anthem wow. than there were sitting. So Maybe it's because we've got We've overdone the national anthem. Maybe people are just biased about. It. Maybe that happens to the welcome to country too. But I also you don't know. think there's that flood the market with anything. You get ambivalent sooner or later. Yeah, and I also don't think that there's necessarily as much of a nationalistic fervour as there was 20 years ago. Probably not. The times anyway, have changed. They have indeed, and I think they're going to keep changing. Okay, just before we go. No, it's your topic. Oh well, I've changed my mind. We talked a bit about the World Cup, although I must say about the World Cup, we'll just do a ramble for a few minutes. <laughs> Gee, what a bunch of petulant sport little brats they've shown them to be at this World Cup. The one World Cup where football players of the world actually had to stand up and show a little bit of metal. You know, they flounced around with their rainbow scarves and all of that, and everybody's high-fiving each other about how much they care. Yeah, what is it, 6,000 people died making that event go ahead. Haven't heard one player come out and say, guess what I'm donating my my playing fee to? I'm going to give it to those families that are still living in poverty because their major breadwinner has died building this stadium in unsafe conditions, just so we can run around here like little prima donnas and whinge and moan and complain about every little thing that happens. Messi and Ronaldo leading the way for petulant sport brat behaviour at this World Cup, quite frankly. Shut up. Be privileged and proud that you're out there and keep your traps shut. Save it for your book in 20 years' time that no one's going to read. It's Honestly, it, it's the worst World Cup that's ever been, and not because it's in Qatar, and not because they treat homosexual people badly or women badly. For totally different reasons. Look, I can't argue with any of that. I think some of the football has been good, but I hear 100% yeah. what you're saying. Um, what's your favourite event of the year? What's, what's your biggest sporting memory for the year? For the Have year? you got one? Yeah. Wow. I don't think I'd I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. struggling to find one. I don't know. I mean, I, look, I enjoyed the Sultan of Johor final, <laughs> to be honest, commentating yeah. that. So that was a special one for me. It was such a And it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, yeah, I don't know what there would be one. We had the Olympics this year. No, that was last year. 20, oh, yeah, 21. Sweden made the playoffs. Oh, that's pretty good. But and just, then lost on penalties. We had uh, Ash Barty at the beginning of the year winning an yep. Australian Open. Uh, um, nothing seems to have really grabbed me like, oh, yeah, that was really, really good. Or Yeah, I think, because, I think what's happened this year, John, because everybody's crammed in events that were cancelled last time, we've just had so much. Nothing's been, been allowed to breathe. Yeah, and, and there's not been, it's just been event after event. If you watch the ads on Fox... Australia won the T20 going, World yeah. Cup and then lost the T20 World yeah, Cup. That's the thing, there's just been so much, it's just a jumble of sports. Yeah. 
and and I can't think. It, you know, I know a lot of people have been talking about Cam Green, but you know, golf, whatever. <laughs> I want to touch on one guy who we lost this year and okay. recently, and that was Paul Broughton, who we had oh, yeah. as a guest on this show. I still think he was one of the most interesting guests we had on this show in that he was a rugby league player, a rugby league coach, and then became a rugby league administrator. And having worked in all three areas, I remember one of the things he said. He said, you will never achieve as a club unless your CEO and your coach are on the same page. Yeah, well, how true is that? And they back each other 100%. And he, and, he was so true about that. And he goes, and then equally, the coach has to trust the players and give them time and, the relationship. And I, I just remember it's a really good interview, and I mean, he also uh, we spoke to him because he brought out his book then, wasn't it? Yes. One more walk around the block. You can read the title from here. There you go. So yeah, um, I would say rest in peace, Paul Broughton, and thanks very much for coming on the show because I thoroughly enjoyed having you on it. And thank you too. Once again, another year of opportunity to sit here and talk about sport. And you, and hopefully there'll be... really interesting people. Yeah, and I hope there'll be a few more commentary opportunities in 2023. Oh, are you going to be doing any commentary? Are you going to the World Cup? Which World Cup? Hockey World. Which World Cup? <laughs> Jesus. Hockey World Cup, my friend. The real one. The one that counts. <laughs> uh, look, I can tell you, John, I was approached by Star Sports to commentate oh, cool. it. But unfortunately, I've been told that the uh, operations at the International Hockey Federation have blocked me. So I will not be doing it at this point in time, unless there's a drastic change, which is disappointing. But you've just got to take that on the chin. I'm sure many hockey lovers will be disappointed to hear that. But thanks again for all your support. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Merry Christmas. And we'll be back the end of January. Will we? Okay. Some people are on the fence. They think it's all over. See ya. We'll be back next week.